That's Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, he is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth! And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now the question I want to begin with this morning is is this, what do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God? I suppose you could turn that around and say, why is God's kingdom such good news? Um, Over the last few weeks, we've seen that whatever else David's rise has given to Israel, it's given them the kingdom of God. And he was a king who took his throne with God at his side. Uh, When he became king, he made sure that the highest throne in Israel did not belong to him. The highest throne in Israel was the Ark of the Lord in Jerusalem. Whatever David has given to Israel, it's been the kingdom of God. And so why is that so good? What do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God? And my guess is that if you went outside and asked the average person on the street, their answer would be not much. Just think of the connotations of the kingdom of God. They're so austere, aren't they? And think of that word theocracy. It conjures images of enraged clerics wielding holy texts and calling for holy war, or of shrill Presbyterians domineering Hebridean islands with the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having a good time. If we let God... If we let the people that say that they love God rule, well, what we'll get is something cold and harsh and joyless. On the other hand, one of secularism's founding myths is that it is kind. As the curtains have come down on the age of God, we think that we've become a gentler, a more humane, in a word, a better society. So why would you want the kingdom of God? It's a good question, isn't it? Perhaps like me, you begin every day by praying your kingdom come. I wonder, do we ever stop to ask whether that is something that we actually want? And if so, why? What do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God? Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and in lots of ways, it's quite a pivotal chapter Um, in the books of Samuel. And from one angle, this is the absolute high point. David is in his pomp, the king after God's own heart, putting that heart on display. And so if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like in action, what what it looks like when a king really does rule in the fear of the Lord, this is it. It's the high point. From another angle, this is the beginning of the slides. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the beginning of a section that runs all the way through to chapter 20. Um, And without wanting to spoil too much, it is all going to come undone. 
David loses his way. And this, just this, the seed in chapter 9, is what he loses along the way. In other words, if the question is, what do we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God? The answer is here, the things that we see here. Uh, You can summarize um, what we stand to lose in just one word. And it comes up, did you notice it, in verse 1 and again in verse 3? And again in verse 7, it's there twice more at the beginning of chapter 10. It's a little Hebrew word, chesed. What do we stand to lose? Well, in a word, it is kindness, chesed. Not the common run-of-the-mill human kindness, but the covenant kindness of God. And the point that this chapter is making before King David comes crashing down is that the thing that a king who gives you the kingdom of God gives you more than anything else is this. Yes, King David was victorious. Uh, Yes, King David was mighty. Yes, King David was just. Yes, King David was good. But over it all, he was kind. He was kind. Uh, Three points this morning. And first of all, the king's loyal kindness. Let's start at verse one again. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now you might think that's a bit of a strange follow-on from the end of chapter eight. Chapter eight ends with this scene of sort of universal victory. Everywhere David goes, he wins. And then suddenly you find in chapter nine, David looking around and trying to find somebody to be nice to. And I suppose you might imagine that it's a sort of tokenism, you know, that this is one of those moments when somebody who's made it to the top kind of looks around for the the charity opportunity, write the big comedy charity sort of check and get the um, photographers to turn up and take all of their snaps. But that's not it. And the key to um, this chapter is to remember back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Perhaps you remember that heart-rending scene when David said goodbye to his friend, his best friend, Jonathan, for the last time. Um, And do you remember that as they said goodbye for the last time, with tears flooding down their faces, Jonathan made David swear. He said to him, David, David, when you have won, when all of your enemies have been cut off, when you have ascended to the throne, if I'm still alive, please would you show me the steadfast love of the Lord? And if I'm not would you show it to my house? See, this is exactly the right thing to happen next, isn't it? David has won. All of his enemies have been cut off. He's made it to the top. And so he says, I remember Jonathan. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Whatever kindness is like, the Lord's kindness, it is faithful. It's loyal. David's loyalty is drawn out by the contrast with Ziba. I look down to verse 2. Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan, a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? 
It takes 10 chapters to see just how much of a piece of work um, this chap, Zeba, really is. But I think even now, in this chapter, we ought to have our suspicions. Zeba is a servant of the house of Saul. So let me ask, how come Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson and his heir, how come Mephibosheth is not with Zeba? Zeba has a big house, lots of servants, lots of sons. Where's Mephibosheth? Actually, Mephibosheth won't even name, uh, Zeba won't even name Mephibosheth um, in this chapter. So far as Zeba's concerned, the only relevant information about him is that he is crippled in his feet. And my guess is that Zeba saw which way the wind was blowing. And Jonathan and Saul fell. Ishbosheth, and Saul's successor, fell. There's no future for the house of Saul. And so he quickly forgot his master and got on with trying to live under the new regime. But if Saul's servants have quietly forgotten their duties, David has not. Verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Those last two words, of God, and they are crucial. I suppose you could say that they're the key to the whole chapter. And David is self-consciously acting as a king under God. He knows that the Lord has shown chesed, steadfast love, kindness to him, that God has kept his promises to him, And so he wants to pay it forwards. In other words, what we're seeing in David is a self-conscious reflection of God's own kindness. And whatever else it is, it is loyal. And we're so used, aren't we, to leaders who make promises on the way up that they have no intention of keeping when they get there should they become inconvenient. I just think of what's ahead of us this year. I guess we'll have all sorts of party political leaflets and maybe even some manifestos thrust through our letterboxes. And we will know to treat them with the scepticism that they deserve. Here's my prediction. Not one of the political parties will feel obligated to honour their election pledges should they win and they prove inconvenient. Not so with the kingdom of God. David had nothing to gain from Mephibosheth. He was a nobody. He lived in a place that literally sounds like nothing. No one even knew that David had made that promise to Jonathan. It was made in secret. There was no one else to see it. But this king had made a promise. And the king is loyally kind. Do you think you might like a king like that? Uh, Secondly, the king's tender kindness. And David is very tender in this chapter. Verse 3. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still the son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Now, this story is topped and tailed with a reminder, both in verse 3 and again in verse 13, that Mephibosheth is lame. And again, if we're attentive readers of 2 Samuel, that ought to ring some bells. And we might remember back to 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, because as the readers, we know why Mephibosheth is lame. 
what happened was that when the house of Saul fell, when Ishbosheth fell, Mephibosheth, the little five-year-old at the time, his nurse was so terrified that she fled in fear. In fact, she was so terrified that as she fled, she dropped this little boy. And so ever since he's been barely out of nappies, Mephibosheth's life has been defined by the consequences of his family's fear of the house of David's. And of course, under any other regime, he would be right to be afraid, wouldn't he? I don't know whether King Richard III really did do away with the two princes in the tower just down the road from here. But it's thoroughly believable, isn't it? He probably did, because it's the kind of thing that new regimes do all the time. If you're part of the Richard III society, I'm so sorry. You can come and chastise me later. It's the kind of thing that new regimes do all the time, isn't it? Not David's. Verse 5, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, do not fear. There's no hint that David's speaking through gritted teeth or he's just grinning for the cameras. Actually, it's quite a lovely scene. I mean, explicitly in verse 7, he reassures Mephibosheth, do not fear. But actually, I think the real tenderness comes in verse 6. And for one thing, did you notice this? The narrator drops David's title. And the whole way through verses 1 to 5, he's been absolutely adamant that David is king, the king, King David, the king. But the minute that Mephibosheth comes in, he's just David's. Not David the emperor lording it over his subjects. David, Jonathan's friend, talking to his friend's son like a friend. And then there's what he says, one word, verse 6. David said to him, Mephibosheth. Like I said, Ziba never names Mephibosheth in this chapter. It's just possible he'd forgotten his name. But the first thing that David does is to use it. And the second thing he says is do not fear. Again, the point is that at this moment, David is a mirror of the chesed, the loving kindness of God. And Mahatma Gandhi or Thomas Jefferson or Fyodor Dostoevsky, I didn't know which one, and it turns out the internet didn't know either, famously said, and very famously, that you can judge a society by how it treats its most vulnerable members. It has to be said that on that measure, our society, which is so sure that it is kind, can come up very short, can't it? And don't get me wrong, we're very kind to ourselves. We're very quick to let ourselves off the hook. But when it comes to the old, or to the unborn, or to disabled people, we can be unbearably cruel. Not so the kingdom of God. He binds up the feeble. He feeds the hungry. He raises the poor. He lifts up the needy. He's tender like rain that falls and makes grass sprout on the earth. And so is the king who reigns under him. The king's tender kindness. 
Or do you think you might like a king like this? Thirdly, the king's generous kindness. Because there is no doubt that David is generous, verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Now, even if you stop there, it's worth noticing that David has gone above and beyond what he promised to Jonathan. And he never promised Jonathan that he would provide for his family. He only promised that when all of his enemies had been cut off and he had risen to the throne, he would not cut them off. And so the mere fact that David has confronted the grandson of his great enemy, who made it his life's work to try to kill David, and who is still, let's face it, a genuine pretender to the throne, the mere fact that he has confronted him and not liquidated him means that already technically he can say, I kept my promise. And more than that, he gives him back his family lands and his servants, and he makes him rich. But more than that, did you see verse 7? And you shall eat at my table always. It's very striking, isn't it? It's so striking, and the narrator is so determined that we'll be struck by it, that he repeats it four times. Do you see that? And so verse 7, he says to Mephibosheth, and you shall eat at my table always. And then giving instructions to Ziba in verse 10, he says, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And then in case you missed it, uh, verse 11, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the kings. And then one more time, and so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The generous kindness of King David. I mean, it's lavish, isn't it? To take the grandson of your enemy and to make him like one of your sons. It's unnecessary. It's unnecessary kindness because he's already given Mephibosheth everything that he needs to provide for himself, to to be rich. And then he says, but actually no need because he can always eat at my table and be one of my sons. It's kind. Because David's table is not for the useful, and it's not for the strong. It's for the vulnerable and for the weak. And again, for a careful reader of Samuel, our ears might prick up here. And we might remember Hannah's prayer right at the beginning of 1 Samuel. We might remember her prayer to the Lord, her rock, the great God of reversals. And he lifts up the poor from the dust. He raises the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes. He gives them the seat of honor. And here it is. This is what it is like when a king rules in the fear of the Lord. The Lord has lifted David up from the dust and given David the place of honor. Time was when David called himself a dead dog as he was speaking to Mephibosheth's grandfather, and now he's sitting on the throne. And the king, after God's own heart, is like his lords, with the same generosity, lifting Mephibosheth, the dead dog, from the dust, and seating him in the place of honor as one of his sons at his table. The generous kindness of the king. Don't you want a king like that? 
And the point is that this, just this, is what we stand to lose if we lose the kingdom of God. This is what makes the kingdom of God so good. God's loyal, tender, generous, loving kindness. In the flow of 2 Samuel, this chapter has a double purpose. And first of all, it shows us what we lose because this is all lost. Um, It's all going to unravel. Um, In the coming weeks, we're going to see David's loyalty undone, his tenderness turn cruel, his generosity become poverty. The gut-wrenching thing about this chapter is that David didn't really follow through. And the reason is that he stopped being a king under God, sharing God's heart. And we'll come to the details next week. But as David became more like Saul, all his loyalty and his tenderness and his grace was left in ashes. Now, this is a crucial point. And we, as a society, we've conned ourselves into thinking that a less godly age is a kinder age. And we've conned ourselves into thinking that a less morally upright age is a kinder age. That religious devotion and unblemished integrity somehow make a society cruel. Now, of course, there is a form of religiosity that is cruel and burdensome. And the Bible has a lot to say about that. And there is a form of claim to goodness that is harsh and judgmental. And the Bible has a lot to say about that too. But make no mistake, those are counterfeits. Real goodness, real godliness is like the sun rising. If David is not good, he cannot be kind. When David stops being good, he stops being kind. If Jesus were not good, he could not be kind. And the more we appoint leaders who are uninterested in the Lord and indifferent to his ways, the crueler our world will become. That's the negative purpose. This is about what David lost when he turned his back on God and his goodness. But we can turn that around because the whole way through 1 and 2 Samuel, both at David's best and at his worst, David is only ever an imperfect shadow of the better king that these books promise. A king who really would bring the kingdom of God near. And I don't know about you, but as I read through this chapter, I couldn't help but think of Dozens and dozens of episodes in the Gospels where Jesus outshines David's loyalty and his tenderness and his generosity ten to one. So think of him standing by his disciples, laying his life down for his disciples whilst they're outside swearing that they never knew him. Think of the Lord Jesus reaching out and touching the leper, restoring sight to the blinds, making the lame to walk and to leap for joy. Think of him spreading a table for tax collectors and for prostitutes and even for Pharisees and for disciples. Think of him calling Lazarus and Zacchaeus and Simon and Mary 
by name. Every one of us here this morning is a Mephibosheth, a natural enemy of the king. And every one of us who knows the Lord Jesus is a Mephibosheth, a natural enemy who now sits and eats with the king as our friend. It's one of the reasons why we know that the man Jesus of Nazareth really was bringing the kingdom of God near. It's the one of the reasons that we know that the man Jesus of Nazareth really was the true son of David. Because this is what the king after God's own heart is always like. Faithful, generous, tender, and kind. If anyone ever tells you that all the fun will be had in hell, and please don't believe them, hell is cruel, the kingdom of heaven is kind. And the purpose of 1 and 2 Samuel is to make us long for this coming kingdom, and to make us pray for it, like Hannah, to make us trust that it is coming, like King David in his last words. And the purpose of 1 and 2 Samuel is to make us long for this coming kingdom, but we don't just have to long for it. We can begin to enjoy it now, because the king has come, and we know him by name. If you have ever wondered what you stand to gain from the kingdom of the Lord Jesus, start here. His faithful, tender, generous, loving kindness. And his love will never fail. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that this is what you are like that you are the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much that this is what the Lord Jesus is like, faithful, tender, generous, kind. We want to ask that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus for who he is, to love him and trust him, to long for his kingdom, and we pray that we would be so gripped by the kindness of the Lord Jesus that we might begin to reflect it ourselves, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.